Hello everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise, an ongoing telecouncil series brought to you by the Peace Alliance. This audio archive is a great conversation we had recently with Michael Nagler of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. You can find out more about the Meta Center at metacenter.org. They also have a phenomenal project called the Roadmap for Peace which is posted at that website. For more information about this series and its upcoming guests, please visit dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. Thank you, everyone, and enjoy this archive. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach. I'm a board member of the Peace Alliance, and... Restorative Justice on the Rise is the name of this ongoing telecouncil series. We just kicked off the series yesterday with a phenomenal council with author of the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander. So I just want to welcome you all tonight. This is an international telecouncil series. It's a platform for discussing restorative justice and other related practices, unitive, transformative justice, and how we can bridge the existing prison industrial complex with solutions. So tonight uh, we have a very special guest with us. I'm very excited to introduce to you in just a moment Michael Nagler of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. But before I do that, I just want to point out a few technical aspects of the room that we're in together. The whole purpose of our council here um, myself as host and with the Peace Alliance bringing it to you, is to provide a forum where we can speak together and where we can open up the lines for us to dialogue and ask questions. So if you have a question tonight, usually what we do is that about halfway through the call, we'll open up the lines, and then towards the end of the call, we'll do the same. And so what you do with that is you press 1 on your keypad, that's your telephone keypad to ask a question. We might also be doing a couple surveys tonight, depending on how our, our guest speaker feels about that. Now, all of these calls are uh, recorded and posted at dopeace.us. That's do-d-o-p-e-a-c-e.us. That's the social networking site for the Peace Alliance. And you can find all of the archives there, including yesterday's call with Michelle Alexander. Without further ado tonight, I just want to, um, first of all, say a little bit of a personal message to you about um, Michael Nagler and his work. I, I just really appreciate Michael and the place that he's come from in, in the way of nonviolence. He's considered one of the foremost scholars in Gandhian practices and, and wisdom. And um, most recently, the Meta Center for Nonviolence, which he is the director of, has created a roadmap for peace. And tonight we're going to be talking quite a bit about that roadmap and the placement of restorative justice as one of the primary uh, aspects of democracy and social justice moving forward. Michael is one of the, as I said, most respected scholars and advocates of Gandhi and nonviolence in the world today. 
He is Professor Emeritus of Classics and Comparative Literature at UC Berkeley, where he founded the Peace and Conflict Studies Program, founder and president of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. And, and you can go to that website at metacenter.org. The author of, among other books and articles, Our Spiritual Crisis and the Search for a Nonviolent Future, which received a 2002 American Book Award and has been translated into Arabic, Italian, Korean, Croatian, and several other languages. Among other awards, he received the Jamnal Bahai International Award for Promoting Gandhian Values outside India in 2007. So I just want to welcome you, Michael, uh, with, with just uh, a depth of respect. And um, if you would just start out today, tonight's call, with um, giving us some background as to what brought you to where you are now in this work and, and where you see this moment in time with nonviolence in our world. Well, thank you so much, Molly, first of all, for having me, uh, having me back again, and second of all, for that wonderful introduction, which I will try to live up to. Uh, yeah, I guess I always had kind of an inclination towards nonviolence, though I wasn't always nonviolent myself, but since I uh, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I was the shortest kid in my school, I, I had to really l reach out for nonviolence. That's partly tongue-in-cheek, but partly true. And uh, I was passionately um, inspired, stirred up by the civil rights movement. And I remember one day just sitting around in Greenwich Village and listening in on a radio conversation coming from the Deep South where uh, it was a rally of the civil rights activists. And somebody said, well, there... They're beating us. They're using violence on us. Why don't we use violence back? And the speaker said, because that's not who we are. And that just struck me so deeply because, you know, partly in my mind I was saying, yeah, why don't we get back? But there's something, you know, and it's taken me three decades since that conversation, since I overheard that remark, to realize that, as Mahatma Gandhi said, nonviolence is our inner nature as human beings, and that's what separates us from other forms of life on this planet. So I came out to Berkeley in 1960, smack into the 60s, and weathered the free speech movement, and uh, came out the other side of it bitterly disappointed because it didn't look like it was going anywhere, and uh, very fortunate, blessed, to stumble upon a really superb meditation teacher who obviously was destined to, to pick me up, uh, whom I was destined to meet, and met Sri Ishran, in, uh, who's the founder of the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation, in 1966. And he, I heard him talking about Gandhi. I heard the incredible depth of uh, love and, and respect and reverence that he had for Gandhi, and I began to realize that uh, Gandhi was much greater than I had even thought on the one hand. But on the other hand, he was also somewhat more accessible. He wasn't just this remote guru type, but he, he worked very hard on himself 
in ways that we can also, and and that in effect is what Ishrin was was teaching it, uh, and still is teaching through his center, the passage meditation and the allied disciplines. So I took to them, and uh, my place in the community of the people at the Blue Mountain Center turned out to be promoting Gandhi and nonviolence. So I really feel, Molly, that I, I have this lineage where it comes from Mahatma Gandhi to Sri Eknath Ishran to myself. However unworthy I may be, it's a great lineage to be standing in. And so my life's work, second to the life work of fixing Michael Nagler, is um, helping to continue Gandhi's Gandhi's legacy. Gandhi not only practiced nonviolence, but in his own words, he reduced it to a science. And it, it, that can call for some continuation because you need to reinterpret a lot of the things that he said, which were now 50 years ago in a different country and completely different civilization. We need to reinterpret them. And, of course, in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been this incredible outburst of scientific evidence, which is extremely helpful to establish nonviolence scientifically. So we try to keep in touch with those developments, and we've just uh, given a fellowship to someone who is an expert in that area to help carry that on. marry scientific findings with the wisdom tradition to come up with a far more inspiring story of who the human being is. And that human being is obviously capable of extremely inspiring nonviolent power. So that in a nutshell, Molly, is what what Meta is doing right now. Michael, you you speak to the science of, of I, I guess I could say peace, the science that, uh-huh. that augments our understanding um, in in so many ways to help us uh, take take it take it to the next level. Could you mm-hmm. could you speak to some specific examples, perhaps, of what what you mean by that? And also, I'm fascinated by what you say about the reinterpretation of yeah. Gandhi's messages, especially "Be the Change." Even could mm-hmm. you speak a bit to that? Well, uh, let's see. Maybe I'll just start at the back end, Molly. With, <laughs> with I know, that's, a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, you know, the funny thing is, just just for the record, this might be almost in the trivia category, but uh, we don't think Gandhi actually ever said, be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, I've checked with uh, his two of his grandsons and looked around in the literature myself, and, and you know, it's kind of not his rhetoric to say be the change. But, uh, you know, that doesn't matter all that much. He certainly would have approved of it. And, he, for example, when uh, Joan Bondurant, uh, early political scientist to study nonviolence, went and worked with him for a long time and said, well, there, Gandhi, I've now, you know, studied all of your material. Is that enough? And he said, no. <laughs> now you have to actually go out and live it, Joan. So he definitely was in favor of that. And we are not offering any serious reinterpretation, but sometimes we need to figure out what would be the modern Western equivalent. And the the main example I'd like to share with you 
is so he had this marvelous constructive program alongside of the very dramatic satyagrahas that we know about and the resistance marches and so forth. His main emphasis really was on building stuff and building stuff yourself and not waiting for the opposition to give it to you. And he developed in the course of his career 18 projects, which we also have done with our um, roadmap, which we'll get to in a bit. But at the core, the center of all of those projects, he had this brilliant, brilliant program called Charka, or, or Spinning Wheel, Homespun Cotton, which worked marvelously on so many levels. Among other things, it was what we call nowadays a stealth operation because the British didn't realize how it was undermining their grip on India until it was too late. Um, but we've asked ourselves for years, you know, what would be the equivalent of Charka? Because people are not, you walk around, there's, there's only a few people who don't have enough clothes on their back. We suffer from a glut of clothing coming, flooding in from every part of the world. What would be the equivalent of Charka? And there have been different opinions, but my own opinion, and I think most of us at, at Meta feel comfortable with this, is that for now we don't need a physical thing. You know, some physical things like um, sustainable farming are definitely going to be part of the program. But the, the, the central thing that we need to provide more than anything is a story of belonging and how we belong in the universe. We're not these isolated material fragments. The universe is not a meaningless place. We have a very inspiring destiny to discover and live up to, and it's a destiny that pulls us all together. So that's an example of not so much a reinterpretation, I guess, as a translation into the modern Western context. He, what he used the spinning campaign for, we're going to use the new story campaign for that same function. And of course, uh, now to get to get back to the science that you started out with, it's really all over the map. In one extreme, we have the quantum nature of reality where we have realized now for 110, 20 years that the universe does not consist of material particles. It consists of shifts in energy and that these energy shifts are essentially what scientists call non-local. That is, it's not just something that happens in one particular place. It involves the entire universe. That's one extreme. To go over to the other extreme, and then we'll fill in some steps in between, the other extreme, we have political scientists like uh, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, who do a standard kind of statistical analysis of transitions to democracy. You know, this is how they do science. And they study these transitions from an oppressive regime to a more democratic one. And they looked at about, uh, I think, about uh, 300 of them and asked themselves which ones were violent, which ones were nonviolent, and what was the outcome. And they discovered that the nonviolent ones were literally twice as successful. 56% of those succeeded, whereas the violent ones succeeded only about 23% of the time. Furthermore, they discovered that the nonviolent ones led to a more stable regime, which should be kind of intuitive. 
and this was surprising even to me, they were faster. I took on the average two and a half, three years, whereas a, non, a violent struggle, such as what's going on in Syria today, takes on the average of nine years. And of course, it's incredibly costly in, as they say, blood and treasure. And then in between, we have neuroscience, which has discovered only in 1988 that primates, and especially us, have what they call mirror neurons in our central nervous system, such that if, if I were seeing you now, Molly, if we were on Skype, and if you were smiling, which I hope you are, uh, mirror neurons in my brain, which would cause the smiling to happen in my face, they fire. So this was really big news for nonviolence because let's say somebody is threatening me and I respond to that threatening person without being frightened or angry. If I say to him or her, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, I don't, uh, I don't like force, thank you very much, but I'm not going to hate you, I'm not going to disrespect you, go ahead, do your worst. My mental state actually produces reactions in the brain of that person. So it's not just a question of they look at me and they say, huh, gosh, well, maybe hmm, I should do things differently. I'm actually kind of programming them to go in a different direction. I'm not forcing them, mind you, because we have, we have non-physical control mechanisms in our, in our being also, but it gave really a concrete platform, if you will, for the nonviolence effect. So uh, we're, we have just, as I say, we just started working with a really good science uh, intern who's going to help us really catalog all of this evidence across the board. And uh, I think our story of belonging will have two versions. It'll have a version where it simply tells you what we think the, the nature of reality is and, and, the, and what human destiny is based on science on the one hand and wisdom tradition on the other. And then we'll have a kind of click, clickable form of this where at any particular point, like say we assert, okay, that all life is one. At the end of our saying that in a couple of sentences, you'll be able to click and go to a page that has copious scientific evidence and wisdom tradition quotations for that. So that, we're not quite there yet, but um, in a few days we'll have a version of the new story, the story of belonging, and you know, in a few weeks we'll have that really uh, enhanced document. Was that you too know, long Michael, of an answer? <laughs> not at all. It actually, um, I'd also like to just share um, what it brings up for me. In, in just uh, yesterday, I was writing with a friend. Um, and he happened to have a heart resonance monitor from the HeartMath Institute, or the Institute uh -huh. of HeartMath. And so for those of you tonight who may have not heard about the Institute of HeartMath, they're another wonderful example, actually, of the um, uh, quantification, per se, of uh, the power of our heart field and how that, that supports um, perhaps the yoga of conflict, the mm -hmm. our ability, as you're saying, Michael, to um, be as an Aikido master, perhaps in conflict, and instead of of giving pushing back, 
and giving back to a person what what they may be presenting us, um, you know, completely transforming that energy in that situation. Right. Yeah, yeah our, so our definition of nonviolence is uh, the energy released by a successful struggle with a negative drive. So if someone is threatening me, I have fear in my consciousness, and I decide a very deep level, I'm not going to let that fear kick me around. Or I have anger. I mean, I'm not going to let that anger drive me into action, raw anger. But I'm going to convert it, as Martin Luther King said, we expressed anger under discipline for maximum effect. So we do have that anger, we have that fear, but we bear in mind that our actions are never going to be directed against the well-being of a person. We can we can resist their project to the death, but we're not wishing them any harm, any unhappiness. And that's the magical formula which enables us to undertake this struggle. Mm. In fact, we, we say that there's, you can almost boil nonviolence down to two principles. One, that you're never against the well-being of a person. And two, that the means and the ends have to be congruent. With those two rules of thumb, you can almost recreate the whole science, as you were saying, the Aikido of nonviolence. So I just want to take a pause here for a moment and, and welcome all of you who have arrived perhaps a little bit late here. We're talking with Michael Nagler of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. My name is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm your host of uh, this teleseries. Restorative Justice on the Rise is brought to you by the Peace Alliance. And I just want to highlight, Michael, um, the September 11th event that's coming you, up yeah. with the National Peace Academy. You'll be, you'll be talking with 9-11 families, and mm -hmm. you're also partner, partnering with Peaceful Tomorrows. And I find that to be very compelling, and I know that people can find more out about the Meta Center at metacenter.org. And certainly, if you'd like to stay in touch with Michael tonight, we'll be talking about that a little bit later in tonight's call. But um, one one last little piece before we drop into the restorative justice conversation here and the, the peace roadmap, um, I just wanted to mention that I had the honor of talking with Arun Gandhi earlier this summer. Um, you You as well, Michael, were on the Summer of Peace series. Right. Um, that's been ongoing, and I happen to be hosting the Justice Week of the Summer of Peace, and one of the themes that was uncovered in that week was the power of vulnerability. So mm -hmm. as we seg into this conversation um, more deeply about the roadmap and the prominent place that you've put restorative justice there on the map, I also want to just call to everybody's attention that um, in the email today, we sent out uh, a PDF of that roadmap, which you can also access if you'd like to while we're on the call together at metacenter.org. So um, just just speaking to how does vulnerability um, and our willingness to, as you were saying earlier, see each other's place in the story, um, inform restorative justice practices? And then if you could, you know, introduce us to the map. Wonderful. Thank you, Maya. Yeah. 
Uh, the power of vulnerability uh, is a phrase that um, I, for one, picked up uh, in a film about the Philippine uprising in uh, 1986, the People Power Rebellion. But it, it's a, it's clearly one of the principles of a, a nonviolent response. That a a violent response to a threat often means I'm going to protect my physical well-being at all costs. And this is why people in great numbers rush out and buy guns, thinking that they're protecting themselves that way. Though, in fact, they're five times more likely to hurt somebody in their own family than an intruder. But, you know, the facts don't really register on that level. People have this gut reaction, don't hurt me, I'm going to do anything I need to to you to prevent you from hurting me. And this is what a threatener expects. But if you stand before that person and say, go ahead and do your worst, I'm not going to respond in kind. It has a really compelling effect on that person. Now, mind you, it doesn't always, quote, work in the sense that it doesn't always protect you. There are people who have been killed trying to use nonviolence, but far fewer than the number of people who have been killed trying to use violence. But I think of my friend David Hartso, who, when he was a teenager, uh, he was in a in a uh, lunch counter in Virginia, and he was threatened by somebody with an enormous knife. And he said, "The person said, get out of here, or I'm going to this goes through your heart.'" And uh, David looked at him, which wasn't easy because the man was so filled with hate. But he looked at him in the in the eye and said, "Brother." Uh, you do what you feel you have to, but I am going to try to love you no matter what. And astoundingly, the fellow started trembling, he started crying, he turned around and he walked out of the lunch counter. So that's the power of vulnerability. And I, in my book, Search for a Nonviolent Future, there are many, many examples. And now, uh, how that would fit into restorative justice, that's an interesting idea, Molly. I never had really quite considered it, but... The reason we have a retributive justice system is that we're all following that knee-jerk reaction of protect ourselves. So if someone um, exhibits criminal behavior, we look at that person as a threat to us and we want to get that person out of there where they can't hurt us. And we never think, what is going on inside that human being? Can we restore him or her to better functioning? And once again, we find that the facts are overwhelmingly on the side of restorative justice. Uh, I may have mentioned to you once before I went into, uh, into San Quentin to give a class on nonviolence, and I was part of a program. I was later told that in that group of men who were uh, 16 years to life, you know, so these were people who had committed what we consider serious crimes, the rate of recidivism in that group was 2%, whereas the national average is 76%. So you have to make this leap of faith that if you're willing to take some risk, if you're willing to be a little bit vulnerable, you actually end up much safer. And so that logic applies beautifully to restorative justice as well as every other aspect of the conflict uh, spectrum. And we put restorative justice in a prominent place in our roadmap, which, which, as you say, Molly, we can talk about in just a minute. 
we put it there because, first of all, it's inherently so valuable. Our retributive justice system is causing so much pain. Two million people entrapped in that system. And all of the pain that it causes to the jailers and the guards, and especially to the executioners. And it's been documented now that executioners suffer terribly because of what they do. And, they, and often, uh, often enough, they end up committing suicide, just like our troops are now committing suicide at very high levels, not numbers. So it's a, it's a disastrous system causing a great deal of human suffering and waste of human potential. So we would obviously have that. Uh, on the map as a key program in the social justice area. But we have another reason for highlighting restorative justice also, and that is that I think uh, if we want to get to peace, to a world without a war system, if we want the United States to stop being the country that supplies 77% of the arms to the world, if we want it to stop being a country which spends more on, quote, defense, unquote, than most other countries in the world combined, it's going to be very difficult to get there because people are so wedded to that war system and they spend so much of their respect and, and reverence for fighters in that system that I don't think we can get there directly. I don't think we can say to most Americans, you know, you have a nonviolent peace force operating out there. It's very successful. You have a United Nations, which is starting to support nonviolent peace force. We don't need the war system anymore. Let, let, let's scrap it. I don't think we could get people to go along with that. But we could more plausibly get them to go along with a switch to restorative justice, at least in certain areas. And then we could go say, hey, look, you know, let's, let's take um, the state of uh, Illinois. Here's a state that adopted restorative justice practices. They, they even went to New Zealand and studied the Maoris. Uh, they went down to the Navajo and studied them and put together a, a, a system of restorative justice. And it's working beautifully. They're spending like one-tenth of what they spent on the criminal justice system of the past. We could make that work, and then I think we could use that as a platform. In course of time, we could say to people, you know what? What this says to us is we don't need a war system either. We could do in the international community what, we're, what we have successfully done domestically. So again, it's partly our you know, inherent love for the, the great good that restorative justice would do, but partly because I think we could leverage that into actually building down the war system in course of time. And it seems to be that the justice conversation certainly is a primary aspect of uh, building a culture of peace. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love how um, these common themes arise in the conversations that, I mean, from Justice Week this summer, with Arun Gandhi, with Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles, and um, you know, yesterday with Michelle Alexander, uh, author of The New Jim Crow, it's very apparent that it's not about uh, you know thinking that we have to 
just throw everything out and even, of course, disrespect the existing system, so to speak. We, we need mm -hmm. to we need to align with the people within the the, the system itself in a way yeah. of compassion, in a way of bridging. Right? It's, and yeah. that's what you're saying here is that that by doing um, our small projects on a community level, they're actually quite significant. Oh, I, I completely agree. I think that's the only way it's going to start. We had a, a brilliant woman um, who became head of the uh, Criminal Justice Division in the state of California. She had done a terrific job at San Quentin. And uh, the hope was that she would move the whole state in the direction of restorative justice and I think she lasted about two months. Uh, so to do it on the big level, to start on the big level, I don't think is workable, much as we'd love to do it. Now, uh, the way we've come to uh, to do that bridging, Molly, that you spoke of, is, is we feel that the need to defend society from people who have become predatory is quite real. And we don't say to people, you know, just shut down the prisons and send them all home. We say, yeah, we need to do something about people exhibiting criminal behavior, and we need to do something about rogue nations or other people in other parts of the world who may have a, a grievance with us and may want to attack us. Yeah, do all of those things. But there's one thing that you must never do. You must never degrade another human being. You must never engage in dehumanization. So let's go back to the drawing boards and figure out how you defend the country and how you protect a society without dehumanizing, without warehousing people. And that leads you directly to nonviolence and alternative ways of resolving disputes, even on the international level, and they do work. And it leads you directly to restorative justice um, on the domestic level. So it, we find that that's a very powerful rule of thumb, no dehumanization. And that's why uh, we're, we're well lined up, incidentally, with the move to amend people who are trying to get corporations disenfranchised as people. Um, you know, we're trying to overturn Citizens United, possibly by a, an amendment to the Constitution, because that's a, an extreme act of dehumanization, which we think is really affecting people's consciousness very badly. That decision that a corporation has the same rights as a, as a natural person. So um, did you want me to talk about Roadmap a little bit? Yeah, I'd like to dive into that absolutely in just mm -hmm. a moment. But given that this is um, a circle and a council, I'm realizing we're a little after uh, the half-hour mark here. And I'd just like to encourage anybody who would like to ask Michael a question uh, or make a comment um, to press 1 on your keypad, and I will get to you as soon as I can here in the next segment. Um, that's just uh, your telephone keypad. Press 1 if you have a question or a comment for Michael. And. Um, We'll go ahead and field a few here, Michael, and then we'll, uh -huh. we'll jump in a bit more specifically to the roadmap and talk about um, what inspired it and uh, the specific aspects of it, and then you know flesh out a little bit more about the restorative justice 
um, and the news story as well, as as it says on, on the PDF. Um, yeah. Okay, well, uh, Roadmap, no, and incidentally, where you want to go to uh, sign on to this thing at present is um, metacenter.org, and the meta has two Ts. It's the Buddhist one, metacenter.org slash roadmap blog slash belonging. That will take you uh, right into a place where you can sign up, make comments, send us suggestions, uh, find find out where you fit in, and so forth. So we had these ongoing conversations every Friday at Meta for a long time, and uh, we were asking ourselves, you know, how to address the huge problems that we're facing through nonviolence. And then Occupy came along and kind of sharpened everything, and we stepped back and, you know, said, how would Gandhi uh, address this question? What would Gandhi do? And we realized that he would probably recommend three phases. First, first thing you want to do is, is work on yourself. You want to empower yourself. So you want to clear up some of your consciousness by not exposing yourself to dreadful commercial mass media that we've got, corporate media. You want to learn everything you can about nonviolence, the kind of substitutes for that media culture. You want to pick up a spiritual practice like meditation if you don't already have one. And you want to act out your new consciousness with your relationships and then find out where you fit into the overall problem. So uh, then the next thing you'd want to do is, let's say you're interested in uh, education, excuse me, or some other problem area, you want to try to address it constructively through your own community and your own resources. And then when that hasn't worked or when you've been confronted by opposition, as you usually will be, then you go to satyagraha, protests, uh, and so forth. And then we happened to go to Birmingham, Alabama, to hear from uh, someone who spent the first quarter century of his life in direct contact with Mahatma Gandhi. That was Narayan Desai. And lo and behold, he... He gave us two, three two-hour workshops. The first one was on personal cultivation and empowerment, how they did it in the ashram. The second one was on constructive program. And the third one was on satyagraha, or active resistance. So, wahoo, we really felt very confirmed. And we created this model, which moves outward from personal empowerment through constructive program to nonviolent resistance. Constructive program, uh, Martin Luther King said, you ne- we need to be able to cooperate with good as well as non-cooperate with evil. And then we divided the problems of the world into six, six wedges of the circle, as you will see. Uh, and creating a new narrative, a new worldview, a new concept of who we are and how we all belong to one another and to this great project of transformation we put that top dead center. We think that's the most important. Then one of those wedges is, of course, world peace. Another is domestic justice. And uh, then two of them are dedicated to the environment. So um, one of them is dedicated to 
the uh, climate change and another one to other environmental issues. And we gave it that prominence partly because uh, we just feel that the uh, climate change thing is so terribly important and the uh, other reason being that that's where most people really have their attention right now. I think for maybe if you went out and talked to 100 activists right now, maybe 95 of them would be involved in environmental issues. Oh, and by the way, I forgot one of the wedges. Uh, at 6 o'clock, opposite new story creation, we have violent, uh, sorry, vibrant needs-based economics. And we divided each of those wedges into three some of them are big areas like restorative justice. Others are specific projects like 350 in the climate uh, protection area. Uh, and we kind of did that by way of suggestions where, where those are not cast in concrete, so people may want to make their own versions of those 18 projects. But we thought, you know, it's kind of neat. Gandhi had 18 projects, so do we. Um, and I think the first thing that this model does when you look at it is to give you a feeling that you belong to in part of a bigger picture. That is immediately an advantage. That's a plus. Because for so often, for so long, we've been struggling with this feeling that we're siloed, we're, com we're in competition. You know, if I'm saving the whales and you're working on uh, anti-recruitment for the military, we can get to feel like, hmm, you know, you're right and I'm wrong, and I, I don't want you taking away my resources. But this puts us all on one map, all on one picture. And the next step would be to form communities of interest once we've located ourselves on this map and once we have kind of a new story that we've agreed upon. And the third step would be to come up with a strategy for the whole movement. So uh, I, Mike, at this Michael. moment, I would recommend. Michael. Sorry. I, I want. I just. I have an important pause right here in this moment, where you're you're um, speaking to finding yourself on the roadmap. I just want to just make sure people know that they can go to metacenter.org and actually Stephanie Van Hook has orchestrated a wonderful new discussion board and um, page there at metacenter.org where um, you had just pointed to as well, Michael. But um, the purpose is being for people to come and find out more about um, discovering mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, where you might find yourself on, on this map. And certainly I also would like to just say um, that this is – what you're bringing forward, Michael, is something that is, um, you know, not like an instruction telling people that this is the way to do it. This this actually has been cultivated from, uh, you know, decades of understanding and, and study and also a deep, in, uh, I would say, sense of, of our human predicament. And so I just want to throw that out there, too, and in, in gratitude to you and the Meta Center for, for bringing this forward so definitively, because I, I've seen it um, popping up in many different circles in various forms, and you're bringing it into a place that really makes, it really pinpoints how we can find, you know, because many of us may not even know necessarily where, um, you know, where we definitely 
belong in, in this space, but we there's no question that we all belong and that we all have a place in, in this uh, in this new story. Well, I, I, I so appreciate your saying that, Molly. That, that's exactly correct, and that is the spirit in which we offer it. We have pulled together the best thinking that people have already done, and, of course, it has a Gandhian flavor uh, to it, um, but it's the result of conversations with many people, and it's still uh, a work in progress. I mean, what, right. what we feel now is the only kind of two things that we would ask of people if they want to be part of this is that they, they agree with the primacy of personal cultivation uh, in line with uh, the, the new story of belonging, and that they, they like the rhythm of going from personal strength to constructive work to resistance. In fact, the formula we like to use there is let's do constructive program wherever possible and nonviolent resistance where necessary. So anyone who feels, you know, that they, they can feel comfortable with those two ideas, at least provisionally, they should feel very much a part of this, and we're open to any suggestions, renegotiating Thank parts you. of it. Thank you for giving us uh, the context here more specifically, and um, I would like to open up the lines here to the council at hand. Definitely. Um, yes. Uh, Jean, welcome. You're, you're live. Hi, uh, I really appreciate your highlighting restorative justice. Um, what about the role of victims? Um, often I've heard that restorative justice should be victim-driven. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question, Jenny. Are you referring to uh, VORP, the Victim Offender Reconciliation Project, or how did you mean that? Well, um, that certainly is um, one of the most well-known um, where a, a victim of a violent crime meets with the person who committed it. There's lots going on, though, with less severe crimes with juveniles in terms of the young people having the opportunity to sit down and face the people that they harmed and uh, find out what harms they created and come up with a plan uh, to um, repair that harm as best possible. And in some places, it's even an alternative to the juvenile justice system. Yes, that's, that is a, a part of restorative justice, uh, and I, I think it's a valuable part. I, I'll never forget, years ago I happened to be in Atlanta when I think it was four white boys had burned down um, an African-American church, and they were uh, sentenced by the judge to rebuild that church. And I thought yes. that was a perfect response, and even even better than the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which uh, which is okay on the verbal level, but I think people who have offended have hurt others. They need to work that offense off in a, in as concrete a way as the offense itself. I agree, and where 
possible and we're safe, I think it's also very powerful for the offenders to come face to face with the victims and and see firsthand um, the emotional harm that was created Not as well as any property damage or um, theft. Yeah, it's it's not only seeing the harm, but for me, the real loss when one person has injured another is the loss of relatedness. It's, it's the breaking of community with that person. So yes. you, you come back, and here's you know where mirror neurons actually would come into the picture again. You actually <laughs> see, <laughs> you see the suffering of that person. You you have reconnected with them. And that's what restoration is all about. But we're doing it to people who've offended on the on the social level. Uh, instead of throwing them away into a warehouse, we're working with them. Is what you're just what you're talking about on the personal level. It's right. reconnecting a relationship that's been broken. Thank you. You're welcome, Jane. Thank you for your question. Thank you so much for that, and and just uh, you know the the, the, the role that, that restorative justice and transformative justice and even unitive justice plays in um, providing a platform, just a basic platform for uh, a victim to be heard, is so necessary. Yeah, it seems, and um, and and so this is this is one of the ways that. Uh, for example, Restorative Circles, Dominic Barter, has worked in Brazil for mm-hmm. uh, a couple decades now. Yeah, um, and not just Brazil. Right, exactly, all over the world. <laughs> yeah, I will never forget, I was at a meeting in Santa Cruz maybe 20 years ago now when we were first putting together as a nonviolent, what has become Nonviolent Peace Force, and Mubarak Awad was there. He was an architect of the first intifada in Palestine, and he was deported by uh, Israel. And so he was at that meeting, and we asked him point blank, do you want us to come to Palestine if there's a situation like that again? Should we come there as a third party and intervene? And he said, by all means, we want you to be there. But he said, but not to tell us what to do. We are willing to die, but we do not want to die alone. So, in other words, that they, they wanted their suffering to be recognized and they wanted their story to be heard. And it was almost more important to them that they be heard than that you know they be protected uh, personally, physically. So I completely <coughs> agree. That was a very good insight, and I think it's been used wherever there's been reconciliation attempts, whether it be in former Yugoslavia or in the Middle East, the first thing that people have often done, and I think correctly, is to get the parties to sit down and let each party say what he or what has caused him or her to suffer. But to do so not in a, in a recriminative spirit, not to say, look what you did to me, but just to say, uh, I am hurting. And on that level, human beings can reconnect, and we can always rebuild 
a world that works for all of us and to which we all belong once that basic recognition has taken place. I'd like to go ahead and, and uh, field a question from the webcast. Um, there's a woman who, uh, actually Reverend Dr. Armando Arellana, uh, would like to ask um, to you, Michael, uh -huh. how would the oppressed, discriminated, forgotten children of God be able to receive a fair justice with so many conservative Republicans attacking and destroying human and social services to the most needed. Yeah. How are we going to restore justice if we ever, if, if we never had received it? Thanks you sincerely for that. Yeah, thank you for that uh, heart-rending question. Uh, well, the approach that we're outlining here is to go behind the scenes, go deeper into the causality, if you will, and ask ourselves why are so many people turning to this, uh, what you call conservative Republican posture. Why are why are millions of people listening to people like Rush Limbaugh and uh, Michael Savage out here in California and thinking that they're hearing truth? And one the answer to that question is that uh, these conservatives are resonating with uh, an older image of what a human being is. And to put it very simply, this model that we are separate material fragments doomed to compete for scarce resources makes somebody like Rush Limbaugh or Michael Savage sound reasonable. So one way uh, to get real leverage on that, that worldview that leads to so much injustice is to point out that, no, this is not who we are. And uh, frankly, truth is on our side, and now science is on our side, and uh, the greatest, most wisest people are on our side. And I think most people don't like this old story anymore of separateness and just being physical bodies. So if we give them permission to believe in a nobler image of a human being, I think they will just flock away from those... Uh, conservative Republicans in, in pretty good numbers, and then we'll be in a good position to build systems of greater justice and compassion and show everyone that they're working, and there I think it'll be a pretty smooth transition from there. Well, I just want to hop back for a moment after fielding another question from the council tonight, Michael, to close with uh, a few of the points you make on the roadmap about where we're at right now. Um, we've, we've been in that for sure, but I'd like to just be a little bit more definitive um, with a couple important points you make. But, but before that, let's, let's open up the line to Bonnie. Bonnie, you're live, and a warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. You know, I wanted to bring out the point about language and how important the framing of things uh, is. It's come out to me that we can't communicate sometimes with people because we're not connecting with their frame of reference. And so if you're in a fear-based mode where you think that the world is a dangerous place and um, that you have to find the language because when you do, 
connect to their values, you'll find that when you call something Obamacare, people say, oh, yes, I'm against Obamacare. But when you ask them the questions, how do you feel about, um, you know, poor people, you know, that can't afford insurance, you know, having basic health care, many people agree with that. But it's labels and um, the framing is so important, and we're not always communicating with the people um, in a language that connects. Well, uh, Bonnie, I, I completely agree. That is part of the story. That is one of the reasons for creating a new narrative is to uh, get a vocabulary that we can all agree on. Uh, in fact, for years, this is one of the things that the Meta Center has been doing is we're coming up with formulas like work versus work and uh, the escalation curve and trying to get a vocabulary that at least we in the progressive community can agree on and then uh, which will not be ambiguous and misleading when we turn to reach out to uh, people who don't yet agree with us. But yeah, I, I completely agree that that is part of the our mind is so influenced by our language, and, and we have to pay attention to that for sure. Thank you, so, Bonnie. Molly, maybe I could just mention a couple of these websites really quickly because we're coming to a conclusion. Yeah, and we still have a few more questions out there. And ah, maybe we well, maybe. The, what do you after. think? Would they be more important? Uh, go ahead and do the website. Okay, um, to, to go out to the roadmap and find out how it works and how you can fit in, we want to go to metacenter.org, meta with two Ts, slash, forward slash, roadmap blog, forward slash, belonging. And to find out about the teleseminar that's coming up on 9-11 that Molly mentioned earlier, you can go to nationalpeaceacademy.us forward slash 9-11 dialogue. So you can also get to most of this stuff just by going to metacenter.org and threading your way down to it. But do we have time for another question or two? I would love to hear them. Well, I would love to invite that, uh, just checking in with you. And if it's okay with you, let's open it up. Um, sure. Opening things right, up is what ahead. I'm all about. <laughs> Welcome, Sue. You're live. Sue, you're live. Welcome. Oh, I didn't hear you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I wanted to pursue the um, the notion of the language that we use that uh, betrays really our deeper consciousness to be in touch with, going back to Michael's, Michael's uh, first phase of our own changes to be in touch with our own selves, and that would be when I'm hearing myself or someone else using the language of them and us, then I know that I'm participating in the same separateness. I'm separate from someone else, and I think that my movement is superior to someone else's, which is also a subtle form of violence. I don't want to join them but I want to, I want to raise my consciousness to a higher level, which sees them as them as one with me. We are one. 
We have different minds. We have similar goals and needs and urges and longings, which would be to be safe and to be loved by each other. And I'm wondering, I guess coming from the NVC model and uh, the restorative circles model that Dominic Barter is um, is uh, um, promoting, how how might I how might we develop the language in our own selves where we don't see or hear Rush Lumbaugh and his millions of followers as separate from us? And how might I find out from him? I don't quite have the language. I'm wondering if you might help with that, Michael, to how might I hear them as one with me and ask them, what do you need, what do you want, what's happening? Yeah, good question, Sue. Uh, I think Gandhi had some very handy language here. He invented a concept which he called heart unity, okay. which means we all have, we all, it means two things, I guess. It means we're all united at the heart level, okay. and it means we all have the same aspirations, as you were saying earlier, for peace and security. But it doesn't try to mask over the vast differences. Like, uh, right. There's no question that on one level, uh, I'm root, root and branch opposed to everything just about that Rush Limbaugh stands for. But I don't want him to be unhappy as a person. And I don't think he needs to suffer in order, to, in order for me to thrive. And I would you know, remind him and us of this wonderful thing that Martin Luther King said, that I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. So we are not in a competitive world, but we have to realize where that unity lies and from there deal with the differences. And a wonderful organization that works in exactly this way is called Search for Common Ground. They talk about identify the commonalities, work on the differences. And I might just mention an, an example. When I was still teaching at Berkeley, I had a couple of opportunities to talk to military affairs classes. And uh, I went into those classes and I said, look, let's start with something that we have in common. We both want the United States of America to be safe. You know, I don't want this country to suffer. I don't want there to be a war on our soil any more than you do. But now the way I think we're going to get to security is different from the way you want to get to security. And on that basis, we were able to have a really useful conversation. Whereas if I had gone in and said, you know, you guys are in favor of violence, I'm in favor of nonviolence, and never the twain shall meet, uh, we, we wouldn't have had any kind of rapprochement. And that also helps me spiritually as a person, because as you were saying, it, would, it, it means that I'm not going in there feeling alienated and I'm not going in there feeling if they're human, then I'm not, and vice versa. So I feel uh, I actually do have this uh, bond of empathy with them. I know what they want. Uh, I think they're wrong about how to reach it, but, you know, hey, that's, that's human life. Thank you. You're Thank you. And uh, how about one more, Michael? I'm game. Okay, great. <laughs> oh, warm welcome, Stephanie. You're live. Hi, everybody. Um, 
Michael, thank you for the talk. This is Stephanie from the Meta Center. I'm here at Meta with um, one of our interns, Chanel, and we're listening and learning from you. And I just wanted to add one announcement is that we are bringing on another intern who will be bringing, who will be creating with us a restorative justice workshop to bring into high school and, and the local area in um, Sonoma County and hopefully in other places in the Bay Area. So we would love to hear from you and um, everybody on the call. If you do have resources that we could help um, direct to Gerard, who's going to be this fabulous intern with us, that we can that he can do some collection and data analysis from it. Um, it would be very, very helpful. So you can contact us at when you go to the Meta Center website. Just email us from there. So that's my announcement. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for me, Stephanie. I'm delighted to think about you and Chanel there in the office. <laughs> Truly just honoring and acknowledging you, Stephanie, uh, for all that you've done to create such a uh, robust program and a heartfelt one as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for your work too, Molly. So we are five minutes after the top of the hour, and we still have another question. Michael, shall we go ahead and close with one more question tonight? Sounds like a good idea, yeah. Open it up to Susan. Susan, welcome. Is, is that me? That's you. Welcome. Hi. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I'm just very intrigued by the new narrative, the new world view, uh, the evolving story. And I think my question is, how do we keep the truth of what we have from the old, correct the error, and then reveal the new truth, the evolving truth, which may mean that we may have to look at our systems in, in the light of going beyond them, uh, even our political systems, our social systems. Maybe could you comment a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, Susan, that is, that's, a, that's a good point. And uh, again, Gandhi, for me, was a wonderful model in this regard because he, he judged every system on its own merits, and he was always willing to say that this part we'll keep, that here's where the injustice is. He was even willing to keep some version of the caste system as long as it didn't involve higher and lower. So uh, I think to a very large extent, uh, like if you talk about our democracy, for example, we would be going back to ideas that were, were uh, the ideas of the founding fathers. Um, and uh, But the, the new narrative, I think, has to drop back and look first at the big picture and say, okay, what is a human being? What is our destiny? How are we related? And once we have agreement about that, then let's look at the political system we have now and how would we change it. Or would we? Or maybe we would throw it out. Uh, for example, with corporations, I don't think we need to abolish the corporate system, but we need to give corporations a new 
agenda, a new mandate, new platform. And there are people experimenting with what they call these B corporations, which have a human welfare and the welfare of the planet in view and not just the maximizing of profit. So, in fact, uh, I'm at an age now where I, I don't like drastic, fast, rapid changes if we can possibly avoid them because that leads to a lot of chaos, a lot of disruption, and then there are people who always take advantage of that disruption to put us back in the same old, same old. So in other words, to quote Gandhi, I do not believe in short, violent cuts. Shortcuts are, are mostly uh, going to be violent. So, yeah, let's get the new values and the new vision in focus. <coughs> excuse me, in focus, and from there, let's look at what has to be reorganized and how. Wonderful. Thank you, Susan, for your question, and for everybody. I know we have a couple people left that would like to ask questions, but in Due respect to everybody's time tonight, I'd like to invite those of you who still would like to converse um, and ask Michael and the Meta Center questions or make comments to go to their website yeah. to that blog that Michael mentioned. Right, Michael? We can exactly. invite people uh -huh. to, to continue the conversation there and certainly to download a full-color PDF of the roadmap. Mm -hmm. And um, I also just want to make a quick announcement, too, that I find really compelling. Um, in uh, later this year, um, actually later this month, excuse me, September 20th, uh, former basketball uh, star, uh, formerly named Ron Artest, um, who is now Meta World Peace, is putting on a, uh, a powerful event as a charity fundraiser, and partial proceeds will be going to the Meta Center. Um, you're also doing some work around um, curriculum that focuses on well-being and positive mental health. And I just want to thank you for that work, Michael, and also to just give a, a thanks to Meta World Peace for, for using his um, prominence on the World Sports Forum for, for the good of the world and for social justice. Well, um, and so, go ahead. Ditto to both of those. He has <laughs> been so generous. and. Uh, we thought we would never get his attention, but but he's been a, a wonderful guy, and I think his his changeover to a peacemaker has been sincere, and he's been just super helpful for us. And just finally, uh, Michael, also to recap uh, what Stephanie had brought up, for those of us who have resources and um, things that we'd like to bring forward for the Meta Center's research and uh, dissemination of different working models and programs that are out there. You can also take that, again, to the website and to the conversation. And I know that um, we'll be in touch here in the near future about further conversations because this moment seems to be the reflection of what's out there and looking at what we have coming forward together and finding each other more easily. <laughs> oh, oh, boy, so, wouldn't that be good? Well, I thank you very, very much, you. Molly. Uh, it's been, uh, as, as usual, a wonderful conversation, and I hope this is a good contribution to the series, and uh, I look forward to talking more with you soon. Likewise, Michael. Thank you so much. And on behalf of the Peace Alliance and uh, myself, just thank everyone for being here tonight from wherever you Skyped or dialed in from, and join us next week for Restorative Justice on the Rise, 
with Dr. Mikhail Lubansky from the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And uh, thank you again, everybody. Have a peaceful and just wonderful evening. Good night. By all means, good night.